You're listening to Sidious Playground, a podcast by Leadership Foundations. I'm your host, Rick Enlow, and I'm here in the great Pacific Northwest with Dave Hillis, president of Leadership Foundations. How are you doing, Dave? Very well, Rick. Thanks for asking. I am so excited about this particular episode because uh, we are going to have a chance to hear a remarkable interview uh, with Rachel McPherson. And uh, when we um, kind of back up and head that direction, uh, it's important for folks to know that uh, we have been talking now throughout this entire sort of uh, part of the year, uh, what we're calling our fall 2020 kind of podcast series about um, non-reactive leadership. And uh, I know there are a lot of people that are binge listening to these podcasts, Dave. You know, they, they've kind of been <laughs> yeah. laying off for a few months and they're just, they're just taking them one at a time. Uh, but it's important for us to maybe at least uh, touch base with uh, the idea of um, kind of pivoting on uh, theologian James Allison's quote uh, about um, being a non-reactive organization and non-reactive church and non-reactive leader. Mm-hmm. And that it has these important components of a hard won space, which we've talked about before that it's yeah. not a, yeah. it's not like, Hey, I can't believe it. I'm accidentally a non-reactive <laughs> leader, you know? Uh, and also where rivalry is broken down and we've, uh, we've referenced again, uh, the, the connection between James's uh, teaching his work, his writing with, uh, Rene Girard and, and, you know, the whole idea of, uh, uh, cop, learning by copying, you know, that we're, mm-hmm. we're not, we're not uh, forging anything original. We're, we're, we're gifted at mimicking. And uh, then he talks about that, that what we'll end up seeing in a hard one space where rivalry breaks down, we'll see forgiveness, which like you have uh, taught us is it's, it emerges. It's not created. It's just that we begin to live in what was there. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, and I think you know our, our conversation today with uh, with Rachel is is a perfect example of that. Um, I think Rick, probably the thing that um, gives me greatest satisfaction uh, in the work that I do um, is to see where God uh, just shows up, uh, mm-hmm. and, and even that is a very false statement uh, where more properly where God already is. And I finally have had the eyes to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you, you know, I've got, I've got my short list of where I've somehow proof checked. Okay. God is allowed to show up in these places either because they have said they're Christian or they agree with the leadership foundation networks, you know, whole kind of arc or whether or not they uh, have the same kind of tastes that I do. I mean, Again, I'm I'm always in some ways, um, you know, sort of reining God back in. Uh, yeah. Sadly, I mean, as as the poet Rilke says, you know, <laughs> he says, "Piously, I produce my images of you until they stand around me like a thousand doors." And I'm a I'm a perfect example of that. So the great satisfaction in my life is when finally. Um, you know, God shows up in all of these unexpected places. Um, and uh, again, the notion that God has always been there, but I finally have the eyes to see it. And I think that one of the places that maybe that is most primary, Rick, and of greatest surprise, particularly for people of faith, is this notion of can God, is God actually afoot in things as crass as carnal, uh, right, as sort of uh, bottom line driven as things like business. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the great, great experience with Rachel is to see this vibrant, vibrant person of faith working for one of the largest uh, companies, uh, uh, management companies uh, in the world, um, just a fire um, with with her sense of mission and purpose and looking at leadership foundations as an opportunity um, to uh, uh, to partner together. So um, this is very personal in the sense that uh, Rachel represents for me a, a place where I had a chance to witness uh, how how forgiveness emerged. Well, and the there's a phrase that gets used a lot in leadership foundation circles. Those who are listening, who are either uh, local leadership uh, foundation, um, you know, leaders, uh, uh, you know, you would recognize, you know, the the, the word collaboration, especially as it's uh, sometimes expressed with uh, the, you know, or explained in in a way that um, people of good faith and people of goodwill. Uh, you know, begin to to overlap. Exactly. Yep. And I think that we, when we say that, we sometimes think more of the good faith uh, category, <laughs> you know, because exactly. like you said, we think, well, of course that's where, you know, God is going to show up. But there, the idea yeah. of um, th- that there are collaborators that are in that, that God is at work in, in all kinds of different um, spheres and, mm-hmm. and, and venues is really, really not only surprising, but it's also one of the most encouraging things because yeah. if it's just up to uh, the thousand doors that we, you yeah. know, yeah. have decided God can open, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's uh, certainly uh, the world is a lot bigger than that. So we're so grateful for that. And it, it kind of, there are some, if we read the text, um, uh, you know, the scripture, there's a few things in there about um, <laughs> about we're in this thing together. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a bit overwhelming, isn't it? Um, yeah, you know, I think, again, you're right. We could go to any number of texts and, and have this supported. I mean, there's two that come to mind for me, Rick. I mean, the first is the First Corinthians uh, 3 idea. Um, we're pretty, I think, provocatively, in some ways, Paul says, um, we're God's fellow workers. Um, and yeah. and there's, there's almost a hint by which... Uh, and one has to be careful here as they theologically parse this, um, but that God sort of like waves us in to the playground and says, uh, yeah, I've got some ideas here about where the slide and the swing and the you know sandbox go, but I'd be much more satisfied as if we could actually build this together, right? If we could mm-hmm. uh, kind of create this together. And if you if you pause for a minute and consider the ramifications of that, that is quite stunning. Uh, the second is 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 the one that I sort of run to a lot, Rick. Um, and I know this is a favorite passage of yours, but is is Philippians or uh, Ephesians two, where Paul uh, describes us um, as God's handiwork. Um, and so, yes, we're co-laboring with God, but is there a shape? Is there a form to what this work will actually look like in its finished product? And so you get the sense that it's, yeah, it's God's handiwork. Uh, interestingly enough, the Greek language there 
Paul uses the word poema in Greek, uh, which is mm-hmm. where we get our English word poem. Uh, and so here's the quick synopsis. Um, yes, we are co-creating with God, but what are we doing? Well, we're doing it as poets, um, both in terms of us being uh, created by God as poems. And then I think our work uh, in cities is going about and helping create further or more or additional poems moving forward. And I think particularly given my love of poetry, um, I, I just, I, I know how, I, I'm not a poet myself, but I have a deep, um, deep, just overwhelming sense of how a good poem is put together, uh, the delicacy mm-hmm. Uh, the way you have to pick certain words uh, that are going to work with other words and other words that will absolutely flatten the poem if they're used at the wrong time in the right way. So that, that has really helped me uh, think about, um, you know, how, again, this, this forgiveness emerges through the lens of, of poetry, um, that we are, yeah. we are poems to each other. Yeah, well, and the Greek word uh, actually is a poema, which is, you know, where we get uh, the word poem and it in a, in a bigger way, just the idea of art, um, mm-hmm. you know, that God is, uh, at work artistically. Yeah. And, and I think what's so, what's so interesting to me is, um, I think I was somehow I got the idea that God was doing math. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, when I was a kid, I thought it was just, yeah, it was like a lot of good. formulas, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, do these 11 things and we we're that's sort of excellent. suckers to the, to the formulaic thing. Cause you know, oh, we like books that say, you know, three ways to do four things. But yeah. what happened was the way I was, uh, sort of tutored, you know, in, in faith, I really did think that it was just a problem solution thing. And then, you know, I ran into Dorothy Sayers mm-hmm. and, uh, she, uh, she wrote the, you know, the. Uh, about God's whimsy in one of yeah, her one of yeah. her books, and she talked about the fact that there are uh, two words missing from the scriptures, and they're the words um, problem and solution. And I actually, you know, of course, you got to you got to Google that one. You know, you got to say, "Hey, Dorothy, <laughs> seriously." And it's really interesting because even in the uh, uh. NIV uh, translation of the original language. Um, there's only one time they translate something problem, and it's in the book of Daniel. And actually, what they're talking about is how to. Um, untie a knot. So they're saying that Hmm. there's a dilemma that needs to be Mm -hmm. untied. And so they use the word problem. It's really not a problem. But what's interesting is that Hmm. uh, I've talked to so many people, you know, as a pastor, and they'll say like, hey, the reason I'm here in this whole uh, church setup is because I got all these problems and I'm here to get solved. Yeah. And, and it's frustrating to them that, that God's not solving them. You know, and I, I, I just think that this Ephesians two passage helps us understand that, you know, when, when you're involved in the artistic expression, it's so much different than the mathematic expression that it's, it's Mm. not, uh, God's not trying to solve you. He's shaping, you know, Mm. he's sculpting, Mm -hmm. he's, uh, you know, he's adding layers of color. And I think that, you know, the, in math, we learned that Hey, let's just reduce everything to lowest common denominator. And, you know, yeah. we've talked about that in other podcasts where, you know, that idea that, you know, let's just get more generic. Yeah. Which, and then we wonder like, why aren't we motivated? <laughs> you know? Yeah, right, so anyway, right. I really think you're onto something there with, with the, that idea that, you know, this is in fact um, what God is working on. And if there isn't anything more collaborative in terms of medium than art, yeah. And, right, right. you know, and cause you see a painting and it's, it's actually a, it's, it's just a giant collaboration of colors 
that yeah. begin to create meaning, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, and even when you don't get the meaning, if you can talk to the artist, that's what I've noticed before. I, I really quick aside, Dave, I, <laughs> I took my son for the first time when he was a teenager, we had a chance to go through the, the, the Louvre in Paris, right? And I was too cheap to spend, you know, the extra $6 or something for the headphones that explain <laughs> what the art is about. So right. we just went room to room and I just was like, Hey, good one. Uh, Dutch artists. That's great. Ancient <laughs> stuff. Okay. I'm hungry. And we were, we were out like in 45 minutes. So we, we did the loop, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. he, you know, was, he's like a middle schooler, but you know, Matt, he's uh, I do. he's kind of yeah. like an old prophetic old geezer old so. even when he was a kid. Old so yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So he turned around. He said, Hey dad, we can't do that. We have to go get the hear, you know, the ed- headphones. And so we went in there. We didn't even get out of the first corner of the first room when we started having someone help us, you know, understand what the artist was doing here. Yeah. Like the, and what, and what the artist was saying and how the artist was using, you know, these images. And anyway, I just, it was a profound moment for me because I thought, well, that is it is so easy to run through every city and say, you know, battleground, mm-hmm. battleground, battleground, battle, okay, I'm done. Mm-hmm. They're all battlegrounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I'm getting hungry here. Yeah. Instead yeah. of understanding the art and, you know, yeah. and, and you need the artist. That's how come I believe that art appreciation is seeing the city as a playground. I mean, you, I you need some great. help with that. Yeah. You got to get the, you got to get the headphones. Yeah. <laughs> Rick, well, you, you have such a stronger uh, sense of this, and I, I love the way you just uh, sort of reflected on that. Um, yeah, I, I, similarly, I have kind of a funny story. We, uh, um, a good friend of mine uh, who was a huge uh, fan of Caravaggio, uh, in fact, Father Steve Lantry, who you know. and mm-hmm. um, Talk about so, a poet, huh? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so we uh, decided to put together a, a Hillis kind of weekend and uh, because my youngest brother lived uh, within about a half hour of the, uh, the particular museum that was hosting this, this retrospective on, on Caravaggio. So uh, Steve Lantry, uh, my two brothers, my boys, and then my nephews all went down there to, uh, to kind of take this in. <laughs> and uh, so some of those that were showing up here had never quite, um, you know, been similar to maybe you and Matt in a, in a kind of a high class museum. So we kind of put the game plan together and we go into the wing to begin to look at these different paintings. And then afterwards, of course, we're at lunch and uh, we're having beer and uh, processing what we, what we saw and everyone goes, Oh yeah. I mean, that was, that was wonderful. And you know, well, how much you get through? Oh, you know, actually the whole thing was great. And we're going along and finally we get to Steve Lantry and, uh, Again, it had been about a two and a half hour block of time. And, and I think it was me that said, well, Steve, what, uh, how much did you get through? And <laughs> total buzzkill goes, uh, one. It's like one what? One wing, one room, one, no, one painting. So he, <laughs> he, he had gotten locked on to this particular painting and, and yeah. actually made it a, essentially a two and a half hour prayer. Um, and I think that, that that's, a part of the way I think of going back to maybe full circle here, but the way forgiveness emerges is through this artistic sense of, as you said, uh, taking enough time to put the earphones on uh, to take a long loving gaze at that, which is real um, and know that, uh, that ultimately 
um, you know, God shows up in that. And I think this partnership with, uh, with Rachel and, uh, and, uh, Delos, uh, in its own wonderful way, um, gave us another way by which to, to do the very things that we're talking about. Yeah. And I think that, um, the voice in the headphones, uh, at the museum, would be uh, a Rachel McPherson kind of voice who understands totally, totally. the, she understands the tapestry of collaboration. Mm-hmm. And then once she begins to explain it, uh, you begin to see it. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I think is so great about this conversation. So uh, again, we're uh, grateful for our, our LF Sidious Playground podcast producer, uh, Noah Basket, And he is also our, um, chief audio journalist and pod buddy who then uh, does these interviews. So let's go right now to, uh, to Noah, the audio journalist uh, talking to our guest on this episode, Rachel McPherson. Yeah. Thanks Rick and Dave. Uh, As you mentioned, I did get a chance to sit down with Rachel McPherson, uh, founder of a company called Mutuality and uh, the title she gives herself, as you'll hear, is uh, actually Partnership Architect. And that's what she is really, really talented at, is making partnerships and collaborations across uh, organizations, companies that you wouldn't necessarily think. And Dave, as you mentioned, we're right in the midst of a, a unique partnership with one of the companies she works with, Delos, which is one of the largest real estate B corporations uh, in the United States. Um, so I will, uh, I'll have her introduce herself and a little bit about what she does. My name's Rachel McPherson. I am the owner and founder of Mutuality. Uh, and Mutuality is a, a, an assembler of partnerships. The title I use is Partnerships Architect. So I like to really architect partnerships that are not just a win-win between two people, but a win-win-win, which means a win for me, a win for you, as well as a win for the collective whole. That's good. Do you, um, I kind of, I really like the title Partnerships Architect. And um, part of the assumption in that is that Right. If you need an architect, it's not like partnerships just sort of happen on their own, like a house, right? A house doesn't sort of build itself. You need a plan. You need somebody thinking through how it all fits together. Um, Can you maybe just walk me through a little bit about kind of Rachel's perspective on partnerships? Why One, why they're so important, why it's important to look for win-win-wins, and then kind of what led you to creating this thing called mutuality to actually help create them. That's great. And thank you for the compliment. I have to give credit to the actual title came from a client, Humanity 2.0, a dear friend who's on their advisory and works with them had said to me, Rachel, you know what you are? You're a partnerships architect. That is what you're doing here. And I said, oh, Wow, I'm gonna I'm gonna use that actually. That's fabulous, and um, I find that some of the best things are actually given to us as opposed to created. Um, and then that the exact opposite from the process of being a partnerships architect, right? So, yeah. <laughs> I think the the process that that I use is really a natural three step process of 
assessments and relationship building along with putting together a collective end goal, really looking at the core needs of each individual or each organization and what really supports or would move forward their larger agenda. And I think when we can identify needs and they don't always come out right away, sometimes an organization thinks, oh, I need money. I just, if I just get money, money is everything. And then as soon as I get money, we can, we, we can do everything we need to do. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes you truly just need to insert some capital and roll out a plan. I've found that there are always deeper needs within the organization as well. So the more deeply we can carve those needs out, then the better we can set up what's missing and then hopefully plug in that partnership. Mm. Yeah. Do you, uh, just as it relates to partnerships, and this is me, uh, this is my ignorance, but it is, uh, you know, our conversations around partnerships have been specifically around, here's a business um, that, that, you know, exists to turn a profit, but also has a deep desire to make an impact um, on some kind of social good. And here are, is a nonprofit organization or ministry like leadership foundations or network, you know, that that's what they exist to do is to bring about social or spiritual good or renewal. Is that kind of, are those typically the kind of partnerships that you're creating and, or are there, or is it broader than that? And if it's, if, if that's kind of in particular, the niche of you, Rachel, and, um, and your organization, is it, um, why that, why is that such a need? I love what you're asking because it's so interesting for a long time myself, I actually discounted this need because to me, it was so obvious, like, well, hello, there's a lot of people that need to work together. And when you work together, you're going to do more. So of course, you'll find each other. Of course, you know, a great example is philanthropy um, foundations like Ford Foundation, for example, or even Templeton. You think oh, they've got money. They have no problem giving it out. They give away a billion dollars a year, Ford Foundation. I mean, there's a process. They've got their own, you know, they're just in their singular world doing what they do. <laughs> well, you know, that's not always exactly true. Ford Foundation has a very strong need to disseminate money responsibly, to look at the greater impact of what their money is doing. Is it serving a sustainable philanthropy and improving neighborhoods, or is it just feeding the poor? You know, I mean, that's, hey, we just, we need a peanut butter sandwich. I mean, that's it. And that's all you do. And that's your effect. And that's your impact. You just, you just gave somebody a peanut butter sandwich, or is it, you know what, here we are, this is a place that's gonna make peanut butter sandwiches for the next 10 years. So, and depending on the leadership and the perspective. So drilling down what I discovered for my own business and I think what gave me really my own courage to start a business, which is very daunting in these times in some ways, was really the core of relationships. So, I've found that really superior quality relationships are what 
really exist in the backbone of every great partnership. And what I've found is that you can put plenty of people's needs together, but if if the foundation of that core relationship is not strong, it tends to have a breakdown that's possible along the way. So I'll give you a great example out of the real estate industry, which is a little different because I also have a real estate background. What's interesting, you can you can take a buyer and seller and put them together. And if the buyer wants this, the seller wants that done, you got a deal, no problem. Now, when you go to the next level of partnership in a lot of commercial real estate, some person might have the land, they want to make the most money, somebody else has some money, they want to really put their money somewhere where they have a better return on investment, and you start structuring these real real estate partnerships, you realize that the deal terms can look very similar. As you move forward into decision-making, if the relationship is strong and something like COVID hits in the middle of your partnership, then when you come back to that table and <laughs> terms have changed because of things, you know, you could say nobody had any control over, if you will. Yeah. I find those relationships are what really help make that partnership stronger during unexpected times. So I do usually two things when I'm assembling partnerships. One, I really try to see if the leader has a core value set and or goals or intentions. This can be a business mission plan. Do those align with the person I'm partnering or bringing to the table? So for example, Delos, B Corporation, looking to do social good in the world, has a mission and vision really aligned with leadership foundations, really looking at the interest and the heart of the local community. And what's what's more important with businesses, sometimes they do a great job waving a flag and they may not really deeply have that (laughs) executed in their culture. I happen to have known in my relationship with Delos, I've seen them operate for eight years. I've heard them on the phone with government institutions. I've seen them work to make things happen for institutions because it's the right thing to do. So I already know how they behave by their actions. So I can trust bringing that partnership to the table. If something hits the fan, at least I know I have a leadership foundation leader and group with similar values and principles as a for-profit company. So even if we were to disagree on something, at least we have the right mission at hand so we can most likely get to a resolution. One of the things that Rachel and I talked about was just how important trust is in establishing any kind of relationship, and particularly when it comes to organizational partnerships, uh, collaboration of any kind. And in fact, we were introduced to Rachel uh, by a gentleman by the name of Dale Irvin, who's been a humongous advocate of leadership foundations over the years, as you both know, uh, former president of New York Theological Seminary, and made an introduction that he thought would actually benefit uh, both parties. And so just the reality of how important it is to have those kind of connections, introductions uh, for trust building. We all have the same hours in the day. So if I had to leave it up to a CEO or or COO or even a Delos advisor right now to form this relationship with leadership foundations, 
it would not happen. They have, they're simply working 18 hour days around the clock. They're serving the clients they have. They're meeting a demand of a Ford market. I mean, you know, really tough time right now. Um, they're a leader in the industry of this COVID response. And so um, it does, this is where, honestly, I started believing in my own value as a business person to say, oh, wow, okay, it, actually, I do add value, which I think is an important question for us to all ask, you know, and just to stay humble to it in these in these times and in these processes. I think a lot of people are pivoting. And when you're pivoting, you really have to look at where do I add value? And is that true? Is it my perception or is it true? You know, so. Yeah. Um, so there's one of the questions that I prompted you with around just this question that we were that we're dealing with at leadership foundations around um trying to cultivate non-reactive spaces right because um we live in a world that's pretty hyper reactive you know we've been messing with this uh this uh quote of the theologian james allison that says you know essentially that um you know the spirit of god is not present in those reactive places um so you know just given your long history and partnerships, and I think probably, I mean, you're in this culture as much as anybody seeing how hyper-reactive a world and a nation that we live in right now, what do you, what do you think um, by way of your own biography, by way of your own values or uh, faith or whatever it is, what do you think um, is needed in a time like this of just hyper-reactive, hyper-partisan world we live in? When I react on a daily basis to anything, it is normally, I will say from kind of the spirit psychological point of view, it's normally some version of my ego or some version of little self as opposed to higher self or wise woman or, you know, um, and I think it's a natural tendency. So also we're basking in reactivity right now as a society. So for me personally, I think there are a couple things going on. One is just recognizing what is reactive and what is not reactive. And just for starters, just starting to label what that looks like. As organizational leaders, I find that if we set the tone, much like you are with leadership foundations and playing around with this concept, seeing where people embrace it, we can be proactive and through being proactive, we can start to label the actual um, internal perspectives that are needed in order to be proactive. So I will tell you, it's way easier to react to something than it is to be proactive. Proactivity takes courage. Proactivity is true leadership. Proactivity is consensus building oftentimes you know, um, Joshua 1, 9, be strong and of good courage and do not be afraid. And I love that. I love that quote, the simplicity of it and the nudging to have courage in our leadership. And I think that helps us, you know, to, um, to move forward in unity and courage often is being wrong. 
just having a perspective that's not the same as others and knowing yeah. that's okay, you know? Yeah, that's really well said, Rachel. I, um, and I think you're right around just how easy it is. I mean, our tendency to criticize is boundless, right? <laughs> yes. And, 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 uh, it is not particularly helpful in trying to build relationships in trying to find consensus like you're describing. And, you know, I, yeah, I want to maybe talk a little bit more because we, you've kind of mentioned uh, Delos and I'd love for you to even maybe describe that a little bit more. But it's interesting. Yeah. As you're working, you know, we're right here in the midst of COVID in October 2020, uh, kind of spike three in the United States. Um and uh, much worse than many other countries as far as our response and our infection rates. Um, but you're working with this company trying to really, you know, help improve air quality, um, but working in really different places, like you said, working, you know, I'm, I'm sure that relationship with a partner in uh, the South is probably really different than a, a partner in uh, your neck of the woods in New York versus out here in the Pacific Northwest. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe just to start with, could you just share a little bit about who Delos is, how you got connected, and kind of the work that you're doing right now around um, trying to respond to the real need right now around related to COVID? Yeah. And I met Delos by meeting Paul Shala directly about eight years ago. We both spoke at a wellness conference, and he was speaking about wellness real estate. And I bring up that history because talk about being proactive versus reactive. Here's a person eight years ago who said, hey, everyone's investing in wellness. I'm seeing all these trends go up in wellness and we've got a multi-trillion dollar real estate industry in the globe. Who's thinking about our indoor health? Who's thinking about what surrounds us? So you couldn't have been more proactive or more forward thinking in regard to the interior built environment. So Delos set out eight years ago to ask the question, what makes everything inside four walls and a roof healthy? How does our body respond to our environment? The air we breathe matters. The, you know, the water we drink matters. The water we use in our shower matters. These things matter. And they set out with a belief. It took a lot of courage because it took a lot of courage, a hundred million investment worth of actual research with collaborative organizations like Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic that said, oh yeah, we, we want to look at that too. We'll, we'll help you research that. So talk about proactivity, conviction, raising money. Luckily, they these twin brothers, Peter and Paul, had a, which I always giggle, two of our best disciples were Peter and Paul. <laughs> but um, yeah, the um, they really sought out to be proactive around asking a question that they really felt convicted about. They had the courage to say, this must be important. And one day it's going to be really important. And in fact, we're going to get investors to you know put validity behind this. So they put their own money in originally, they got these partnerships created, and then they went to the hotel environment at MGM and said, at, in Las Vegas, and said, you know what? We're going to give you these wellness, this wellness floor, just the floor. Ask your customers if they want it or not. So 
within a month, MGM called back and said, whatever you're doing to those rooms, we need three more floors. <laughs> this is the type of proactivity, courage, and leadership that we can bring to every conversation today. Are we reacting to COVID? Are we reacting to our budgets? Are we reacting to the economy? Are we reacting to what's changing? Or are we really looking at trends, putting out a thesis, put out a thesis and let, let a response happen that informs your next step? So this is, you know, from another, speaking of Paul, First Corinthians, we are co-laborers with him. And I love this, love, love, love this, this, this portion uh, in the Bible because what I feel co-laboring means in the real business sense today is that the, the co is the most important word, obviously, as a partnerships queen over here. I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that. But in reality, reality. the co-laboring part is Peter and Paul Shala could put out all they want to unless they get a response back. How do they know how to take their company forward? Yeah, yeah. So, so I know we've talked about Dallas a lot in terms of leadership and, and, and vision. I mean, recently they did this during COVID, again, being proactive. They have a lot of high-end clients that were looking at reacting. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? They called together an entire group of people in an industry set up a webinar and a two hour process by which everyone uploaded all of their protocols and procedures. Then they had the technologists and scientists look at those patterns, look at those protocols, look at what, you know, what gave a real, real opinions back about what people are doing across the globe from Royal Albert Hall to Yankee stadium. What are we doing? What, and can we share information? Can we collaborate? Out of that came a business product, which is the health safety rating. So to me, this is the future of leadership because none of us can promise what's going to happen in the future. But if we can co-labor together, boy, we're going to get somewhere and we're going to get a lot farther. Yeah, that's a, it's, uh, that's a really interesting idea, right? Because we think of like, here's what great leadership is, is it's just incredibly insightful and can foresee and foretell the future, right? And they just make really big bets on things, you know, that nobody else saw versus kind of your idea of saying, no, that's not it at all. It's really about, it's an ability to co-labor, to collaborate, to partner so it's it's throwing out an idea, a concept, a thesis, I think you use the word, and then positioning yourself to work with others to uh, enliven it, to bring it into being, to shape it, to hone it, or to say, no, that's a terrible idea. Let's try something else. So that's a, yeah, I think that's a very bold statement. You know, this is the 21st century leadership skill. It's not... Um, necessarily being really innovative in and of yourself or being really unique. It's about the ability um, and the uh, willingness to, to co-labor like you're describing. And not everybody will agree with this, but I really believe if below 
below the skill and talent, if underneath the skill and talent, you have, as a human being, a true desire to help others, I believe that just that desire alone will help propel forward better ideas. And this is biblical in the Old Testament tradition, basically around the story of Noah and building the ark. You know, I think sometimes in theology and in in religious-based or even interfaith groups, we kind of go to our wisdom. We look to those for wisdom. Give me wisdom. Give me the answer and tell me what to do next and tell me what does God mean by this passage and then what do I do as a rule by that, you know? And I see this a lot. I see this, this methodology a lot. What I'm finding shift as I observe really wise leaders and some of the top interfaith, faith-based guides across the world what I see is this, sometimes the desire underneath is what actually can help push something through. Because even if the wisdom, it could be right, it could be wrong, it's very subjective to the situation. Sometimes a yes is what you should do. Sometimes a no is what you should do. Um, you know, if you see somebody hungry on the street, should you give them money? I mean, sometimes it's a yes. Sometimes it's a no. Sometimes it's not. On, I mean, that's like wisdom says, feed the poor. Wisdom says, take care of, you know, be your brother's keeper, be your sister's keeper. Sometimes it's not the right thing to do. You know, first thing we do in a homelessness training is say, please don't feed people on the street. We, we can never manage the problem if we don't assess the situation. Please send them to this resource instead. That's the first thing in our in our training at our shelter that we, you know, that we implement. And yet I know many people that their heart is too big. They could never withhold money from someone hungry on the street. So maybe for that person, it's a yes. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 You're right. I mean, I, I mean, you've probably, you've been in enough face circles, uh, Rachel, like even you're describing, you know, scripture, I think, uh, you know, in the Christian tradition, oftentimes we we just boil it down to a rule book, right? A source of wisdom, places, you know, morality. These are good things to do. These are bad things to do versus this story of desire, like you're describing, right? And human desire being awakened, being deepened, being broadened by God's spirit. Uh, that's That's a really, I think that's a really well said statement because yeah you're right we get stuck into like what's the right thing to do versus this this whole universe of desire that's everywhere i had the i had the merit to study some of the jewish mysticism and kabbalah traditions with um this really awesome man michael berg and um and as well as other teachers and uh I have a I have a, a really dear friend who's a teacher named Benjamin Malul, and he he really helped me broaden this notion of reactive versus proactive. And the what he taught me was even in this, even in the idea of doing something good, when you can pause in your human behavior. So let's say I see somebody on the street, we we have an interchange reaction. I want to help them. My heart, you know, feels 
fill in the blank, shame, guilty, hopeful, knowing I can help them, excited to help. I mean, you know, any number of human emotions that can react to the situation. If we can pause for a minute and just just observe the situation, observe where am I coming from, from what, what is getting triggered? Am I giving out of guilt, but I really don't want to give? Or am I giving out of true desire to serve, right? And we don't know. We don't know what will come up until we look at it in the moment and then allow just a little bit of space to let, let God in, let the creator in to inform the moment. Really see, okay, wait a minute. Let me, let me assess the situation. And then from there, I'm going to wait for the answer. I think this is very hard to do in leadership. Oftentimes, we just need an answer. Let's move forward. The wise leaders I see, they allow for a collection, a brief observation of the solution, and then some action moving forward. And in leadership groups, if we can build consensus in that process, pause, like first assess, there's some reaction there every time, nine times out of 10, if not 10 times out of 10, <laughs> observe, and then move forward with consciousness, with direction, with intention. You know, you can feel in any number of buzzwords. To me, that's where God interacts in my life. So if I don't pause, it's probably just Rachel going about her day, doing her best. And that's, 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 that's me 90% of the time, right? Totally. Yeah, God's presence in those pauses that actually provide the space for a new kind of relationship with people, a new way to yeah, engage in the world. That's really well said, Rachel. You know, Thomas Edison, it's no mistake that Thomas Edison invented the light bulb using resistance. So you you can't just you can't just put something in the socket without it blowing up. It has to have a little bit of resistance there, and that resistance is what actually creates the light. Rick and Dave, uh, the last really interesting aspect of who Rachel McPherson is is that she also happened to run um, the Faith-Based Initiatives Office for Governor Cuomo in New York State um, for a number of years. And as you both know, you know, faith-based organizations sometimes don't necessarily play nice with one another. And she has this really remarkable example of even in a really challenging situation where you would never necessarily find two people working together, uh, how you actually begin to look at building relationships and this larger uh, project of collaboration. A personal moment I can share from my time with the governor's office and work with faith leaders we had our first meeting at the governor's office and invited the, the interfaith uh, advisors in. It was a little, it was, I was a little nervous because these are very, all very important people. We've got a lot of VIPs coming to the table. Um, and, and early on as everybody was getting comfortable and getting their coffee or their tea or whatever, sitting down and getting their cookies and looking at where they're sitting and all, um, I've got the head rabbi um, of Concerned Clergy for Choice, who's on the board of Planned Parenthood, sitting directly across from Cardinal Dolan's right hand of interfaith advisory and ecumenical leadership. Okay. Yeah. 
and they're kind of looking at each other and they introduced each other, you know, and uh, they just both kind of acknowledge that they've never been in the room together. Oh. I mean, I get chills telling you this story right now because it, it stirs my soul in a time like today when we're so divided. If you, if you bring up a topic like pro-life or pro-choice, I mean, whoa, the heat you'll feel in the room. And yet somehow we were able to bring people that had never been in a room together together because it was a safe environment. We knew the agenda. We knew the common thread. We knew what we agreed on, not what we disagree on. But I think just shared shared agenda, safe a safe space, and as leaders, really creating a place where we all know what is going to be present. We understand the mission at hand. That really helps move forward progress. Rachel, yeah, what a pleasure to to have this conversation with you. It's it was really fun to hear a little bit more about kind of your philosophy behind partnerships, but also, yeah, kind of what brought you to this place and really, really very honored that you would set aside the time. Oh, I'm so honored. I've so enjoyed working with LF and excited to see our partnerships grow as well. Wow. That was remarkable. Thanks to Noah and, uh, and to Rachel for, for helping us understand, um, uh, talk about hard won space, but at the same time that, that, uh, that, fingerprint of forgiveness. You know, one of the things I, I think about with someone like Rachel is something that the, uh, the Jesuit uh, here, David Chardin said, but he goes uh, for him or her who knows how to see nothing is profane. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and I think um, Chardin's notion is, is that, yeah, I mean, this, this world is the Lord's and the fullness thereof um, thus it, the, the whole thing is, is holy. And we're the ones that kind of, again, carve it up and say, well, this is holy, this isn't. And I think the mm-hmm. thing that's so refreshing for me is someone like, um, you know, Rachel, who comes in and, and doesn't recognize these no trespassing signs, these fences, mm-hmm. these, these walls. And maybe, you know, most, you know, wonderful was her comment about, you know, it wasn't until <clears throat> she got into this office that she brought um, Archbishop Dolan, who heads up the Catholic Church in the New York Diocese, uh, together with the person who heads up Planned Parenthood, you know, same mm-hmm. city, and they'd never met, uh, they'd never talked. And now, of course, there's probably on both of their lists, good reasons for why they shouldn't. But for someone like Rachel, right, she said, why, why wouldn't she talk? I mean, you're, you're both living in the same city and, you know, care about a number of things that are common. So just that, that, uh, that notion for me is uh, both very encouraging as well as challenging to say, yeah, don't allow these, these artificial things that we, we oftentimes set up uh, in order to uh, keep us from others.
I think even, even Rick, to go back full circle to, you know, your and my comments at the beginning here about we are poems. I mean, one of, the, one of I think, the remarkable things about a, po- a poet who's really talented is that she will see a relationship between a word and another word that the normal person wouldn't actually put together. Or you think about the, you know, the artist who is painting uh, and he decides to use, you know, this color uh, with this color. I mean, I made mention in our earlier podcast about Caravaggio. I mean, he was one of the first that um, actually made prominent use of the color black, right? Um, prior, prior to Caravaggio, black was like, you know, to be uh, ignored. And if it showed up, it was only kind of on the side, uh, but Caravaggio saw it differently. And uh, so I think that all, you know, feeds into this idea about um, us being poems and creating poetry. And uh, Rachel is a great example of that. What a, what a great episode. Hey, loved it. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we uh, have that segment in our uh, closing segment called Seeing the City. And, um, and Rachel has already, uh, you know, she's already satisfied our requirement, which was to, uh, to provide us something, a recommendation uh, of some kind, whether a TV, film, book, poem, practice, insight, something like that, that helps us to see uh, City as playground. And it's from a very unexpected source. There's a woman by the name of Suzanne Giesman. She spells it G-I-E-S-E-M-A-N-N. Suzanne Giesman is a celebrated and fully recognized ex-high-ranking military officer. She served as top aide for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. She had a very early military career at a time very few women were in the military. So she actually put out a YouTube channel this week because when she retired from the military, she lost a loved one and she started working as a psychic medium and channeler. (laughs) Now, this is what's funny about the whole psychic medium and channeler. I think everybody knows somebody that's been to a psychic. I mean, I, I personally am slow to seek prophecy or, uh, you know, because I, I, I really believe like the prophecy itself can, can be the thing that comes true, right? So, but, um, but I thought it was really interesting because she kind of threw out, she threw out a YouTube channel to her, to her folks. She says, I'm not a prophet, but in the meantime, I'm a former military celebrated officer, right? Which is the exact opposite from some woo-woo psychic world, right? <laughs> But this week, she pierced my heart in her message around around coming out of the closet to talk about who's going to win between Trump and Biden. So I'm going to give a spoiler alert, and I'm going to say she her message doesn't ever actually name a winner. But what her message says, in short, and I would love everybody to re- to listen to this in her own words, but in short, what she says is, we all the winner of this election if no matter what happens on that election day we can process either our happiness or our sadness or our disappointment within ourselves and move forward with kindness and compassion and 
Oh man, she says it way better than I do. But that little blurb, that little six minute YouTube video really changed my heart around this election. It really moved me to remember, here's a celebrated military officer who served our country, who is a world renowned teacher now. And the message is about kindness and compassion because no one actual leader is responsible for where we're going. But each of us individually are collectively responsible for this country. No one person in the military ever makes a country protected. It's the entire slew. So that frontline officer is just as important as that general. And boy, that changed my perspective on this election, these divisive times. You know, it was great. Secretly, I did want to hear what she thought. <laughs> but I thought there was wisdom in what she, you know, what she presented. So I thought it was fun. I hope a ton of people click on it on Instagram and, you know, everybody takes the bait, you know, and uh, gets the message out. But yeah, so mine's a six minute YouTube clip. That's uh, by Suzanne Giesman. I'm predicting the Trump Biden election. Once again, uh, uh, thanks for a great episode. Great to talk to you, Dave. You too, Rick. Thank you. And uh, for our listeners, we'll see you next time. If you have any comments or anything to add or any good ideas, uh, reach out to us at info at leadershipfoundations.org. Until next time. Later. Later.